this time, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Chris Watson, who has uh, kind of been behind me in school most of the years. We did have one uh, PhD class together. Uh, we have a common friend, a very good friend, who is uh, his wife Annette's father, Gilbert Braithwaite, who is, was a real mentor to me in Bible college, and then later when he came to teach at Central Seminary, uh, we've enjoyed his ministry. Chris enjoyed his ministry so much that Chris married his daughter. Uh, that was a benefit I didn't have, so uh, no offense. I mean, I married my wife instead, so uh, <clears throat> I'm in trouble. Uh, so Chris, uh, why don't you come and preach? That would be a good time and open the scriptures for us. We look forward to hearing what God has for us today from you. I bring greetings from First Baptist Church of Morris, a church of like faith and practice. We're turning this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a familiar passage of scripture, and the saying rings true that familiarity breeds contempt. And I'm not saying that we hold certain passages of scripture in contempt, but that we've heard some things read and some things told so many times, we actually no longer think of them in terms of scripture, but think of them in terms of the story maybe that we heard uh, in, as a child in Sunday school. And sometimes the story, because we like separating things out in their own little blocks, misses the entire context of what happens to be happening within the narrative of Scripture. And because I believe that your hearing the Word of God is more important than my saying what the Word of God says, I would actually like to read the entirety of chapter 17 for you before we begin. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, and camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdanim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountains on one side, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft was, of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head was weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up draw, drawn up for battle? Am I not a Philistines, and you are servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall you be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the name of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from, from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and all his men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took provisions and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle lines, shouting the war cry. And the Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left things in charge of the keeper of baggage and ran to the ranks as he went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke to him the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and who takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart, because you've come to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go and fight against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And when he tried in vain to go, he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these because I have not tested them. So David put them off and he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hands and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. 
with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistines, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, wild beasts of the earth, that in all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his head and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David and he ran up and he stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And all the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in the tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Let's open our time this morning in a word of prayer. And now, Father, as we look at this familiar story and account, we pray that we would see it and understand it as it is rightfully in the text, as a shift and a transition from one regency to another. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Our typical Sunday school reading of David and Goliath, small boy goes out sees the giant, no one wants to fight the giant, decides to fight the giant, kills the giant, and see David is this wonderful boy. Similar to a fairy tale, it's become its own modern-day mythology in how we use the story. The individual versus the major corporation, the small business versus the Walmarts or the Amazon, anyone versus the government, anyone versus power. And we typically read ourselves into the story for application, standing in the place of, giant, of, of David. What are the giants in your life that need toppling? But the reality of the story is as that we read it, it's going to be less of a fairy tale and more of a political thriller. 
Let's give a little bit of historical background to what's happening here. Saul, what do we know about Saul? What, what tribe is Saul from? Anyone know? Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's anointed king over Israel. And as king, he has two major failures. Number one, he has a failure to wait for Samuel as ordered by God before he goes and makes a sacrifice. And second, he has a failure to destroy all of the Amalekites. And because of these two failures, the kingdom is going to be stripped away from him and handed it to another. Now, who is the one that's anointed king? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, you have a second person anointed as king. And the second person who's anointed as king is David, this youngest son of Jesse. So here's the political problem that's set up. How many rightful rulers over Israel, divinely appointed rightful rulers, do you have? You have two. One has a reputation. He's been reigning for a number of years. He's an older man by this time. He's tall, taller than any man in Israel. He's apparently good-looking. And then you have Shepherd Boy. Who knows anything about David? He's a farmer. How, how many people, in, any farmers in here? How many people are famous for being a farmer? Not many. He, he's the guy that goes out, takes care of the sheep, comes back in at the end of the day and goes to bed. That's it. That's his life. There's, there's no one in Israel who has really a reality and a right to know who this kid is. Probably a late teenager during this time. The geographical history of this, during the Lachish Valley, the Elah Valley, that Bethlehem is on one end, Gath is on the other. So it makes sense that the armies that are going to clash are in the middle. And so where do the armies stand? Well, they each stand on their own mountainside. They're on high ground. You've got a valley in the middle because you don't want to charge up against the enemy's high ground. Why? Because it's easier to swing a sword down than it is to swing a sword up. It's easier to shoot an arrow down at someone than to throw an arrow up at someone. Concerning Israel, the children of Abraham who came out of Egypt and into the land were ruled typically before Saul by judges. And the book of Judges ends that there's no king of Israel, and the people did what's right in their own eyes, and the people asked for a king, and they get a king in Saul. The Philistines, historically known as the people of the sea, probably originating somewhere near Greece, they control five cities and the narrow strip of land along the southwest coast of Israel, known today as the Gaza Strip. And since the time of the judges, specifically Samson, there's almost a constant battle for control over the territory of Israel. So you have two kings, two legitimately anointed dynasties of Israel. We have the characters. We begin with the antagonist. The Philistine challenger by name of Goliath was a mountain of a man. Built a bit like a strongman competitor. Anyone ever watch Strongman? You, you got guys that, that regularly can, can curl, you know, 200 pounds plus. Their, their benching numbers are 300 pounds, and they, they deadlift something like eight or 900 pounds. They, they pull cars up hills. 
The, the medieval Hebrew texts from which most of our English texts are translated list him as six cubits in a span. Span is a half a cubit. Cubit's approximately 18 inches, so he's about nine foot nine. Tallest man on official record is Robert Wadlow, who was measured at eight foot 11. And he's only that tall because of a serious medical problem with his pituitary gland, and he died at the age of 22. The Dead Sea Scrolls and an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint have Goliath's height listed as four cubits in a span. So he's probably six foot nine inches tall. But in terms of, of a much more manageable and believable height, but the armor simply put, imagine the strength that you have to have to carry this and to use it. His bronze helmet weighs about 30 pounds. How many of you want to put a 30-pound weight on your head and run around? His coat of mail, 5,000 shekels, approximately 150 pounds. Anyone want to wear 150 pounds on your shoulders? He's got bronze greaves, a bronze javelin, a spear shaft that resembles a weaver's beam, probably 15 pounds itself, the spear point itself weighing another 15 pounds. And a spear back then isn't necessarily a melee weapon. It's something to be thrown. How many of you want to throw a 30-pound spear? How many of you want to imagine a 30-pound spear hitting you when it's thrown? No. This guy's huge. He's, he's massive. As, as a Philistine, he's, he's a worshiper of Dagon. He's one of the five heroes of the city of Gath, as we know from later in the book of Samuel. We have the supposed protagonist, the Israelite challenger. Who's the tallest person in Israel? Saul. We know that he has a history of being a man of war, but his son is a much better soldier and man of war than he is. He's one of the few that actually have a sword, we know from the text. The challenger could have also been Jonathan. He's second to inherit the throne. And Jonathan is known throughout the Old Testament for his brave and sometimes crazy deeds in battle. You've got the, the Philistine army that's up on a mountain, that's up on a hill. And Jonathan's like, well, how, should we go up there and take them? And his shield bearer's going to like, how do we know that they're ours? He says, well, let, let's put out a small ordeal to God. If they say, come on up here, we'll go on up there and we'll kill them all. If they said, nah, stay down there and we'll come to you, we're going to run the other direction. So they go up to the army and they said, so, how you doing? They said, well, come on up here. And Jonathan takes it as a view from God and says, okay. Goes up, disarms the man, and his shield bearer kills them behind him. Kills 20 men on his own. Two guys on 20. He's a little bit hoo-hoo in terms of battle crazy. But Jonathan doesn't fight. Saul doesn't fight. Saul is hiding in his tent and he doesn't allow anyone to actually go out. It says in the text here that he's an old man by this time. We don't know how old exactly he is. He still rules for a number of years afterwards. And the actual protagonist here is David. He's a shepherd. 
He's anointed king over Israel. We know that he's red-haired. We, we know that he's good-looking. We know that he's competent with both a sling in one hand, a harp in the other. And his desire is to fight against Goliath, both for the sake of Israel, the people of God, and he's presumably fighting for God himself. So for David, it amounts to spiritual responsibility to fight this war. See, what, what, what we effectively have with Goliath standing there is a trial by ordeal. We don't really want to fight the battle. N- nobody really wants to fight, especially back then. You have all of your best young men in combat. You're in an agrarian society. And what does it take to run a farm? It takes labor, right? It takes a lot of work. And so you're going to have your best men standing there, not only for 40 days. There's a really good chance that if you actually engage in battle, most of those men on both sides are going to die. So do we really want to fight? Is the wise thing to do in the ancient world to fight at every instance? Well, no. Why would you, you lose people. And by the way, it makes a big mess. How long would it take people without a backhoe to clean up thousands of bodies? It takes a while, doesn't it? Nobody wants to deal with war. So the Philistines have an answer for this. We'll take our biggest, our baddest guy, our toughest guy, and we'll put him front and center and say, you fight us, you fight him, you win, it's over, we leave you alone. You fight him, you lose, and we rule you. We take you over. This this conception of a political trial by ordeal is elsewhere in Scripture. You remember, specifically in battle, in 1 Kings 20, you have perhaps the worst king in Israel's history, as one who rejects God, as Ahab. And Ahab is going to fight against the Syrians. And yet the Syrians are viewing this battle really through spiritual lenses. It's not Israel versus Syria. It's Syria's God versus Israel's God. And so... What happens in this battle in 1 Kings chapter 20? You have this battle that they engage it a couple of occasions. Verse 2, Thus then send messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Verse 5, the messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. They will search your house and the house of your servants and lay hands on whatever they please, and they take it away. And Ahab says, let's, let's go to war. Let's go to battle. Ben-Hadad sent to him, and more also the gods do so to me, and more also the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me. 
So they go and they fight. Verse 13, Behold, the prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen the great multitude? Syria sends their entire army against Ahab. Behold, I will give it to your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab says, By whom? How do I know? And the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the district. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he begins, says, You. And so he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000, and they went out while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk, he and the 32 kings that helped him. And they defeated the army of the Syrians. In verse 26, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians, went up to Aphek against Israel, and they decided to change the place and the location of the battle. And the reason that he changes the location and the place of the battle, that Ahab decides to fight against him, Verse 28, a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude in your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So what happens in this trial by ordeal? The battle in the minds of even the pagan Assyrian, Syrians is viewed as something that happens because of the actions of God's. So they defeated us in the hills, therefore their God must be a God of the hills. But I know that our God is a God of the plains, so that if we fight them in the plains, we shall defeat them there. Is Ahab even a worshiper of God? And the answer to that is no. And yet God is keeping his own reputation by allowing Israel to stand up and to defeat Syria. You have here a trial by ordeal. And what does Goliath do? How do we know that we are greater than you? How do we know that our gods are greater than you? Let's do this in one-on-one combat. And so David hears the mockery. And the mockery has been going on for 40 days. Longer than a month. Two armies standing up against each other. Neither one wants to go to the low ground. Neither one wants to charge. Goliath standing in the middle. He's brought into Saul's tent, and what does Saul want him to wear? He wants him to wear Saul's armor. So imagine when the army of Israel finally sees someone coming out of the tent of Saul to fight Goliath. What are they going to see? What are they going to think? Someone is wearing whose armor? The king's armor. Do we ever have a similar event to this in Scripture? Well, going back to the life, and specifically the death of Ahab, 1 Kings 22, Ahab is going to war, and he's taking Jehoshaphat, king of the south, with him. And he says, Jehoshaphat, you dress up in your armor. The prophet says that I'm going to die, and we're going to fool God, and I'm going to dress up like a common soldier. And say that, so they go up to fight. 
When the captain of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it's the king of Israel. And they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel. They turned back from pursuing him. Ahab tries this same trick. And then some guy, some gomer pile with one bullet pulls out an arrow, fires it at random and hits him between the chink of his armor and he dies. In accordance with the word of the Lord. So Saul says, put on my armor. Israel's going to think, Philistines are going to think, it's me that's fighting it. He doesn't say it, but you you can see what's happening in his head. David hasn't trained to wear the armor. David recognizes that he hasn't earned the right to wear the king's armor, and he refuses. David comes out of the tent, dressed like David and armed like David. He has his familiar weapons with him. He has a sling and a staff, and he picks up five stones. And it's presumably because he thought he wouldn't have time to get off more than three or four shots before Goliath was close enough to engage in hand-to-hand combat. And if, it, and if he gets that close, David's in trouble. And of course, the shot hits Goliath right between the eyes and he falls forward with the weight of his armor. And he's decapitated by David using Goliath's own sword. The Israelites chase the Philistines. They defeat the Philistine army. They chase them all the way back to the gates of Gath. But really, what got me rethinking the David and Goliath story and what it was all about happens in the following chapter. The aftermath of the story... As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan knit to the son of David, soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In our childhood Sunday school reading of this, David and Jonathan, good friends, yay, they loved each other. We should be good friends too. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his own father's house. But verse 3 is what really got me. Jonathan made a covenant with David. And anyone that reads their Old Testament and understands their Old Testament ought to stop there, and that just ought to explode off of the page. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Covenant. Covenant equals legal agreement. Covenant equals contractual obligations. Covenant actually means something, and something very specific in the context of the ancient Near East. What is the content of this covenant? What is it that Jonathan is swearing to David? And it actually says it in 1 Samuel chapter 22. First Samuel chapter 22, verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die. I 
Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And the servants of the hand would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Doeg, the Edomite, You turn and strike the priests. And he turned and he struck the priests. I'm in the wrong passage. It's 22 verse 8. All you who have conspired against me, Saul speaks, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me this day to lie in wait. What had Saul said? What had Jonathan actually done? The king presently over Israel was Saul. Presumably, presumably, the rightful heir of the throne of Israel would be Jonathan, son of Saul. Jonathan observes David fighting in Goliath, loves him with his own soul. To put this in Anne of Green Gables terms, there's a kindred spirit there. This guy's a fighter like me. This, this guy's a leader of men. This guy is someone that I could not lead, I could follow. Jonathan's covenant with David in, in chapter 18 is an abdication of the right to reign of the throne after Saul. He is also removing his fealty to his father as rightful ruler and transferring it to David as rightful ruler. Jonathan says, I will not be king, David will be king. Jonathan is saying, my father will not be king, I am supporting David now as rightful ruler. So much so, when the father plots to kill David, who's staying in his own house, Jonathan follows through with the terms of his covenant and gets David out of there. The second part of the aftermath is it actually gives him a popular name among the people. Verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And they sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul strikes his thousands, and David struck down his tens of thousands. And so what do you have? You now have popular support. In one event, somebody goes from a nobody in Israel to being even more popular than the king. So the aftermath gives us what's actually happening in this story. He gets support both from the ruling family and he gets support from the people. So why is this account 
in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, we mentioned that it's an ordeal, a trial by ordeal. And the Old Testament is no stranger to this concept of trial by ordeal. Numbers 5 lists a trial by ordeal for adultery. Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 was essentially a a trial by ordeal. How do we know that Baal is God versus how do we know that the God of Israel is the one and true and only living God? Well, let's, let's, let's have a test. Let's build two altars. We'll kill two cattle. We'll lay one on one altar. We'll lay one on the other altar. And whichever God spits fire from heaven, that must be the true God. And they pray, and they pray, and they cut themselves, and they weep, and they scream, and Elijah mocks, and nothing happens. And Elijah says, let's make this even more difficult. Let's dig a hole, and fill it with water, and cover the altar with water. Wet stuff, wet wood, doesn't burn. And Elijah says a very short prayer, and boom, fireball from heaven burns up the altar. We mentioned Ahab battling against the Syrian armies in 1 Kings 20. Was it God versus God, trial by ordeal? But really, from multiple perspectives, we have an ordeal here. From the perspective of the enemy, how do we end a stalemated war? How do we establish dominance over people, over our people, over yours? Our gods over yours? How can we demonstrate that Dagon is better than Yahweh? We need a combat, an ordeal, a fight. We don't want a full-fledged military conflict. We have perspective of an ordeal from the people. How do you solve the problem of two rightfully anointed kings? If the people got wind that there's a second anointing, that Saul was not present, presently the legitimate ruler over Israel, how do you move popular support from the old dynasty to the new dynasty? And the problem in the ancient world, and this is seen later in Israel's history, is that might effectively makes right. Legitimacy is often solved and established by violence and the removal of the previous line of rulers, as well as an established reign over time. Interestingly enough, when David has the opportunity to establish his dynasty by violence, remember in the cave, Saul's in the cave using the restroom, David's hiding in the cave, he's right there, easy kill, and he says, I will not lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. He refuses to use violence to establish his kingdom against Saul. And if he had, no one in the ancient world would really have opposed his actions. Unfortunately, that would have been considered normal. What was abnormal is that David refused to take his rightful place on the throne of Israel through violence. And yet he has demonstrated his right to rule through his combat here against Goliath. From the perspective of the divine, how do you solve the problem of the supremacy of gods? How do you know that Yahweh is greater than Baal? How do you know that Yahweh is greater than Dagon? How do you know that Yahweh is greater than the Egyptian gods? Well, you know that he's greater than the Egyptian gods because you defeat every single one of them with the plagues. How do you know that he's greater than Baal? Well, you know that he's greater than Baal because you have a fireball that comes from heaven. How do you know that he's greater than Dagon? Because our smallest guy, who's not even a trained soldier, trained warrior, beats your biggest guy who's been a man of war from his youth. 
How do you know that God is supreme? Because we, we have it demonstrated, the supremacy of God, through these events. But really, as that's the why through the narrative, there's really a greater why through the whole of biblical theology. Let's go to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is giving his blessings to his sons. And let me read, first of all, in verse 27. This is the blessing that's given to Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and the the evening dividing the spoil. How many of you want that kind of blessing from dad? It doesn't really sound like a blessing. Verse 8. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, like a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and unto him shall be the obedience of the people." Where does legitimacy of the promised line of rulership lie? Does it lie with Saul of the tribe of Benjamin? And the answer to that is no. Or does it lie with the promised reign of one from the tribe of Judah, son of Jesse, by the name of David? So by David defeating Goliath, we actually have a promise of God that is made all the way back to the line of Judah of one who is going to rule over Israel. The promise that was made in the past actually leads to a promise that is going to come in the future of David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David says, I dwell in a nice house. God is still dwelling in a tent. I think we should build him a temple. And Nathan the prophet says, great idea. You go and do everything you want. Nathan goes to sleep and said, wait a minute. I didn't tell you to say that. God says, God, God says to Nathan, that, that wasn't a prophetic word that you said. You need to go back and tell him the real truth that David's not going to get to build the temple. But... The word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house, a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The promise that God makes to David of an eternal line coming from him, of eternal peace coming to Israel, of eternal peace coming through a a king from his own line, is ultimately fulfilled in the purpose and the person and the work and the coming work yet to come of Christ. The story of David and Goliath is not about a boy. And it isn't about a giant. And it isn't about defeating giants that are in our lives through the enabling power of God. It's it's about a competition between two anointed ones, two kings battling for regency over a nation for the hearts of the populace. But even more than that, it's about the sovereign hand of God leading and guiding history. How do we move? How do we transition between Saul and David? And the David and Goliath story is effectively the point in the narrative from which the story stops talking about Saul and starts talking strictly about David. It's about that one from the line of Judah as reigning king and one from the line of the quintessential king of Israel, David, might ultimately become the ruler of all the world, of all humanity. The story is ultimately about a king, well, not a king, the king. It's about bringing us to a place where Christ himself is ruling on the throne of David from Jerusalem in the earth, making all wrongs right. And in order to legitimize David, there had to be combat. There had to be struggle. There had to be battle. Let's close in a word of prayer. And now, Father, that as we've seen carefully the narrative of Scripture, giving us the rulership of one over another, switching out by your sovereign hand the the reign of Saul for the reign of David so that one day you might fulfill your promise that salvation comes through the line of Judah, That peace for Israel comes through the king. 
rightly anointed, that you've shown yourself once again in your sovereign guidance of history, that the things that you've said to take place would take place, and that the things that are yet to take place will come to pass exactly as you have stated them. And for that, Father, we are grateful. We are thankful. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.